Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Major. And if you're watching this on YouTube, this is something very different. If you're listening to the podcast as per normal, then you can go over to YouTube and uh, see my smiling face for the first time. Um, I thought I'd do it this uh, format because um, we've got a reasonable collection of people now, a reasonable audience over on the on the podcast, which you can, of course, pick up on Apple or Spotify or anywhere you normally get a podcast. And I almost exclusively talk uh, about sailing issues. That's the whole point of the Mariner podcast, and uh, it's the thing that I know about. So going into this, uh, you can see by the title, it's not really going to be that much about sailing. But going into it, I will say that, you know, my knowledge level is the knowledge level of a person who exists in the world. It is not the lo- knowledge level of someone who's a geopolitical analyst or an economist or anything else, but I am a person in the world. And uh, just like you, that means I have my thoughts, my opinions, I have uh, some ideas about what's going on in the world around me, and um, I have an opportunity to speak about it. And that's one of the major developments that we have now since about 2010, whatever it was, people are starting to talk, they're starting to share their ideas, their opinions. And I think that it's very important that we um, that we do that and that uh, I think that's the way that the world's going to change going forward, that we're going to be a lot more of this kind of communication between individuals rather than it coming down through the media, rather than it coming down through the government, um, people being able to share what they think, what they see and what they think should happen um, like peer to peer. So um, I don't want to bog you down in your day if you were looking to have a, a video which is about sailing as an escape from things. Um, this one is going to be about uh, the Ukraine and Russia and what's going on there, and I make no apology for that. Um, when my uh, podcast goes out, it goes to about 1,600 people. Normally on YouTube, we get between 1,000, 3,500 views, something like that. It's a very small group of people, but um, it's a small group of people that seem to share a lot of very similar values and very similar thoughts on what's going on in the world. I often engage in conversations with people, um, and, and when we're out sailing, we get to dig down into what people really think. If you're on watch with somebody in the middle of the night, um, there's not much to do. It's incredible how you can actually cut through the fatic communion, the kind of meaningless um, niceties that we all share when we're just chatting to a stranger at the bus station. If you're on watch with somebody and you have been on a boat with them for days and days, it's suddenly easy to talk about the more underlying basic things in the world. So whilst this podcast is um, out of the ordinary for the content that we've had, it is not out of the ordinary for the kind of conversations I normally have with um, with you guys. When you guys come sailing with me, these are things we talk about. So um, yeah, going into it, I was going to do a podcast which was looking at something connected to what's happening in the Ukraine and Russia. And I was looking at the fact that these oligarchs are having their uh, super yachts chained to the docks and they are having things removed from them, which uh, is part of the the stripping of the um, the chattels of those who uh, support Putin's um, uh, war machine. Um, but when I looked at that subject matter, I started to realize like, <laughs> this is, we're not talking about the elephant that's in the room here. Like, yeah, okay, rich people are losing their boats. But at the end of the day, all of these big super yachts are all um, independently owned by companies and by legal entities, which means that, yep, yeah, take away the $250 million uh, uh, yacht. Has the actual person who supposedly owns it lost it? No, of course they haven't. It's owned by a company that they own, and therefore it's is not really hitting them, is it? So 
there's not very much you can talk about um, when it's such a small issue and, and not be feeling that uh, you're kind of missing what's going on. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the Ukraine. Um, I have some Ukrainian friends. I have Russian friends. I have Russian um, clients who've been on board the boat. And I will say going into this that my position is that uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now is a humanitarian crisis, um, that what the Russians are doing to the Ukrainian people is absolutely immoral. And the backbone, the narrative which is being um, played out, certainly on Russian media, um, is is filled with inaccuracies and lies, which is... Um, but it's allowing this kind of doorway to be opened to them, supposedly doing their special military uh, maneuvers, whatever it is in the Ukraine. So there's a lot of kind of confusion lies around this. As we've been through the pandemic in the last couple of years, I think everybody is starting to realize now that um, the, the media, which we have trusted for decades um, for our news, is not as trustworthy as uh, as we might have thought. It's a nice idea, isn't it, that you can kind of offload your processing for certain issues to other people and then you can just take the kind of decanted uh, f final views that they have and go okay that's my view I, d I didn't do all the research I didn't do all the, the logic and work it all out but I'm gonna I'm gonna follow what this person says whether it's someone on TV or radio or whatever it's strange now that we live in a world where um, we have people who are comedians who are social commentators who are youtubers who are um, in no way really, and they would be the first to say that, qualified to speak on these subjects who are out there doing the research and giving unbiased views. And it's, um, I think it's therefore on every person to realize that they have a voice, even if it's amongst their community, amongst their family. Um, we have to learn a new skill set, which is drilling down through data. This, Since the internet came in, I was... Um, I was uh, at school in the, the 90s. I finished up schooling in the 90s and 96. Um, it was like 93, 94, suddenly like computers are being used in our technology courses and we were writing essays on, on computers. Um, and at that point, the internet was a small online resource, which really was kind of like a digital library. And then there was, uh, you could go to chat rooms. I remember being in Hong Kong in 96, 97 with my friend Spike Chris and um, and Ben, hello to those guys if they're listening to this. Um, and we went to a, a cyber party where a girl that we knew was having a party where we we're going to go online, which was like a big deal to go online. And we we're going to go to a chat room and talk to people somewhere else in the world. And I can remember myself having like anxiety about like, well, what's that going to feel like to talk to total strain? I'm not that person. I'm not the person that just wanders along chatting to everybody. I'm not very good at that kind of thing. But um the uh, what we thought we'd do, myself and my my fellow thrusters, was uh, um, dress ourselves up so that we had a um, uh, a kind of theme for the party. So we went as a, um, a robot. So we <laughs> we got all these little cardboard boxes and um, tin foil and wrapped them all up and put little antennas and, and lights and stuff on. And we turned up at her door for this cyber party dressed as what I can only describe as um, like dollar store cybermen, um, but. It, that was I think that just underlines the novelty of it. Now here we are um, 25 years later on and every single person, um, well, let's not say the world over, although I think a lot of people, a lot of strange places are now also aware of and connected to the Internet. It's more than just a resource of, of info. It's a, it's a way of communicating and, and expressing ourselves at the beginning when it started to happen with the Internet. People talked about the fact that it was just like a waterfall, like a giant open fire hydrant of information. And it was so impossible to 
decode and understand what was coming at you. I think now what we're starting to realize, and I know this as a father, that um, you have to teach your children like critical thinking. You have to get them to, okay, you've heard this piece of information. Where did it come from? Who said that? What's the source that it came in? Um, how does it balance up with other people? What's the political agenda of those people that are giving you that information? Like all this stuff has to be, it's a whole other skill set that we've never had before. And if you're older, I think myself, I'm 44 or older than that. It's a skill set that you might not have realized that you haven't yet developed. It's it's you, you can't just be listening to one set of info. I tried it for a couple of weeks on uh, YouTube where I, I subscribed to what would be like legacy media, MSNBC and CNN and Fox and all those kind of things. And I realized um, there is a crazy... Uh, there is a, a crazy echo chamber that you can accidentally get yourself into where you start to believe that everything that's going on around you is uh, as it's being portrayed on, say, CNN. And that clearly is a very uh, myopic uh, lens to be viewing the world. Then I tried looking at much more kind of fringe things. Listen to Ben Shapiro, listen to um, uh, Russell Brand, listen to Joe Rogan, all these kind of people. And you get, oh, that's a completely other view now. So the only thing that you can conclude if you give yourself the time to do the, the 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 testing is you can realize there's a lot of different viewpoints here and everybody seems to think that they've got the correct viewpoint so in that landscape it's then time to start navigating just as a sailor would do like okay what are the actual things that we can trust here the gps has always been trustworthy before we just follow the little line on the thing and it's all fine, but what if the GPS signal is corrupted? What if there's a large um, estimated position error? What can you rely on? Well, radar is very, very useful. Radar gives you a, a real-world bounce off a real-world fact, and I think these kind of tactics can be used as we navigate what's going on with information around us in, uh, in cyberspace. Um, looking at uh, the Ukraine, looking at what's going on there, which is the kind of subject of this, um, the, it's very, very tempting to get completely on board with everything that's being portrayed in the media. And of course, emotionally, that is what they're doing. We have to understand whenever a, a news organization is showing us anything, they're doing it for maybe three reasons. Number one reason is that the reporter or the, the group of researchers have identified that this is important news in the world and that it will be of interest to their audience. So we know already that there's a, a somewhat of a filter there because there's not going to be the, the governmental elections in a province of India are not going to be as interesting to people from American Midwest as they would be to people from that area of India. Clearly, there's a kind of filter of like what's important and what's not important. Secondly, I think that they will recognize whether they can make money out of it. It's just a, a harsh reality of the world. Even me now, look, I'm making a video on YouTube, which is me kind of doing my podcast and I'm talking about subjects different because I can do sailing videos till the end of time. I'm quite happy with that. My brain is filled up with sailing stuff. I read them on my podcasts. I talk about, read books on my podcast about sailing. I um, do all this stuff. Um, it doesn't really tax me per se to do it because in my sphere of knowledge, but there's no money in it. There's no like uh, extension of that because sailing is a very small world. I'm completely happy with that. For a big uh, company that's got hundreds of employees, thousands of employees and a massive infrastructure around the world, they have to pick the news, which is going to give them the clicks, which is going to give them the the, uh, the the profit, essentially. it's not. There's no two ways about it. And a lot of modern media, certainly modern media that goes out on the TV, their numbers are shockingly low. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Again, as I grew up 
70s, 80s, 90s, TV shows were getting millions and millions of views. That was how it went. Of course it was. Now you start to realize that with the internet um, pushing into people's homes and displacing, like I don't, I've never had cable TV, but now we don't have any kind of TV. We just get things through streaming services. If I want to be entertained, it's Netflix, it's Amazon, it's Crave, whatever that is. Um, uh, then it's uh, on to, uh, I choose, okay, now I'm going to go on to YouTube. I'm going to look at the news. I'm going to go on to services which give me information. I'm going to pick through those, a new game that I have to play every day of picking through the information. So for these these um, big media organizations, legacy media, corporate media organizations, they're looking at what's the big news and is it relevant? They're looking at can we make profit out of this? And then thirdly, they need to, I think, understand whether there's going to be any kind of legs in this story. Um, is it going to be an ongoing thing that they can really start to get behind? Obviously, Trump during the Trump years in the US, you could just keep talking about that for, as they did, literally years and years and years. In the UK, if we've got some big situation going on with the royal family or we've got some big situation going on with Boris Johnson, it just is in the news and doesn't come out of the news for months and months and months. This is going back a bit, but when Lady Diana died in 1997, literally the UK media was just awash with that for months and months and months on end. It had legs. It was something they could grab hold of, get there. They knew that they were... Um, um, bolstered by the fact that it was a, uh, a story which is of interest to the people that it was going out to. They knew they could make money out of it and they knew it had legs, so they just went for it. So the story with Ukraine is like that as well. Um, I repeat again that what is happening in the Ukraine, from my point of view, on every level is absolutely wrong. But in the search for an understanding as why this has happened, it is appropriate and correct to look for all information from all sides and try and understand what's happening. If we don't do that, if we deny the facts, if we deny the truth of it, if we deny the other side's version of what's going on, we never truly fix the problem. This problem, it would appear, has been brewing since 1949. And uh, we'll get into exactly why that is just now. But in 1949, when they created NATO, and then very, very quickly, only a couple years later in 1955, they create the Warsaw Pact. Those phrases have been in the world and in my ears since being a child and it's really only now that I'm starting to go back and go okay what is this what's happening um, there's a lot of people who are pointing at the fact that the history of Russia of the the west and east kind of uh, mixing it together in this uh, territory of eastern Europe Ukraine particularly these things have been brewing for a very long time and um, what we want to see is we want to see the Russians stop essentially we don't want to see russian soldiers killed we don't want to see russian um population uh, impacted negatively and, and and forced into poverty and all of the awfulness of poverty through sanctions we want a magic wand and we just want those tanks to roll back out and we all kind of go back to a nice calm situation talk it through nobody else dies nobody else is um being pressed into the you know poverty by by sanctions I don't think that's going to happen. It's going to play out some other way. So if our um, fairy tale ending is not on the cards, then to create an actual proper solution to this, we're going to have to look at the history. We're going to have to address the issues on both sides of the equations or three sides of the equation, the West, Ukraine and Russia. And then we have to come back to the table and, and work out, okay, <laughs> how do we calm this back down again? So 
Um, uh, I'm going to speak here not in any kind of pro-Russian way. I'm I'm in search of the, uh, the, the the truth in all this stuff, and I think that's what we've all become. We hear that um, phrase now, which to me sounded a little bit a little bit kind of out there, a little bit uh, granola and crunchy to me. But truth seeker is a is a, 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 a I guess is where we all have to be now. What's the truth? I think we've become a little bit drowned in a world where we you know personal truths can be as valid as actual truth personal objectivity is the same as actual objectivity so if we look at it objectively in 1949 at the end of the second world war um the 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 west the the allies basically came together in a way to um to create an anti-Soviet pact, the Soviet, uh, the Soviet, uh, the USSR, the Soviet Union at that time was so massive that they were seen as being potentially the big issue. And and you know, we have to understand that at the end of the Second World War, Russia had done so much to save the world from the Nazis, but the West was understandably very nervous about Russia because it was so big, so million, million, so many millions of people, so much resources. So they created the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which um, the U.S. has used NATO as a bit of an instrument um, to manipulate what's going on in Europe for quite a while. Um, By the time it gets, uh, you know, to the point Reagan and Gorbachev are talking in the 80s and we have this process of perestroika, um, glasnost, peace. And then, of course, um, in 91, is it the Berlin Wall comes down and uh, we start to and there's a a feeling perhaps at that point, it's like, oh, it's over. Yay. Everything's okay now. But there's two sides to that equation. I think, you know, Germany reuniting was a very key moment in what was going on. The um, the move at that time was, okay. Germany's going to reunify, but is it going to reunify and go over and become part of Warsaw Pact countries and become essentially a Russian um, uh, subsidiary? Or is it going to go over and be part of NATO? And uh, what happened was that um, Gorbachev was given the offer of um, Germany will come into NATO and then NATO will never expand any further to the east. Um, that has been denied by American um, diplomats in the last couple of years. But there are literally hundreds of memos and, and minutes of meetings. And uh, uh, it's very, very clear that that promise was given that uh, the, the West would not move any further east. It would not threaten the Soviet Union if they were willing to break up the Warsaw Pact countries and if they were willing to allow Germany to come into NATO. So... At that time, the Russians were given the impression that we were not going I say we, I, you know, I lived in the UK, I'm now in Canada, it's all kind of part of the same. Uh, I'm certainly not reporting from Russia here. So we made promises. Uh, our people that we elected uh, made promises and said we won't come any further east. Since that point in the early 90s, um, many, many more countries have joined NATO. And this really is where we start to get down to um, why Putin is making the moves that he's making. Now, there's also a narrative that we need to talk about here because Putin is um, talking about this conflict and talking about his actions within Russia and within Russian state media. And he's laying out a very particular story that he wants this to kind of be um, uh, understood. He wants to create a narrative filter that people then understand what's happening. But at the very base of it, um, he has warned for 20 years that these uh, threatening, he saw it threatening moves by NATO of more countries being absorbed into NATO, more 
um, uh, more movement towards the uh, the Russian borders, that that was a very, very um, antagonistic move. And what he has said has actually been backed up by a number of uh, NATO and UN and American British diplomats who have been very much involved in this, who have written open letters to government saying, you really want to think about what you're doing here because this could end up being a massive issue. Let me just give you the first one of those. Okay, so this is um, what Putin had to say in um, 2007, and uh, this was um, came to me through the um, news network Weon, W-I-O-N, um, an interesting network, 5.3 million viewers on YouTube, or subscribers, sorry, on YouTube, and you do find you get a different spin on the news. They're kind of a bit more based in um, the Middle East and Asia. Um, the, the presenters themselves are... Uh, Non-standard, uh, if you look at the lens of uh, CNN and MSNBC, these people are not uh, white and uh, probably Protestant or Catholic or Christian. or They have other worldviews. They have different perspectives, and it's good to get variety in your information. So coming in from Weon, uh, the Gravitas Plus show, um, Putin's last friendly warning was in 2007 at the Munich conference. And he says, NATO has put its frontline forces on our borders. This expansion represents a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust and we have the right to ask against whom is this expansion intended and what happened to the assurances our western partners made after the dissolution of the warsaw pact now you can look at that any way you want that's from 15 odd years ago and um at that point, uh, that is just a kind of uh, rhetoric and, and conversation. And it doesn't really look like that from this perspective now where people are being killed on the streets of Ukraine. And I further underline the fact that I'm not trying to come down on either side of this. It's just these are facts. He did say that at the Munich conference. If we look now at, at NATO, like where it was in 1949, when these original um, assurances were given, we had the 12 original member states of NATO. That is Belgium, Denmark, France, Iceland, the United States, United Kingdom, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Portugal, Canada, Italy, and Norway. So at that point, that's who was in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And then in 1952 and uh, up till 1982, you then get a whole different set of people starting to enter in. Now, this is already when the this is now the Warsaw Pact is in place and um, NATO is improving the, the, the size, it's improving its membership. So 1952 to 1982, you have Greece, Turkey, Germany and Spain enter. Um, and then in 1999, now after the removal of the Berlin Wall after the um, assurances have been given to Putin, uh, not to Putin, sorry, to Russia, that uh, NATO is not going to come any further to the east. Poland, Hungary and Czechoslovakia, sorry, the Czech Republic come in in 1999. So, so far, not too bad. We've got another seven people in. But then between 2004 and 2009, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Romania, Lithuania, Croatia, Slovakia, Slovenia and Albania all join um, NATO, which you don't have to know too much about um, the geography of Europe to understand that we then got a lot of countries who are right on the border between uh, Russia and NATO. In 2017 to 2020, uh, Montenegro and North Macedonia entered uh, NATO as well. So we're now expanding this out massively. This is a organization which was formed after the Second World War, and it was an idea to um, bring together people who had fought in the Second World War and, and create an anti-Soviet um, uh, convention, a, a, a group of folks who are all very interested to 
push back what's going on with Russia. Um, NATO is intending to expand even further. Aspiring members uh, include Bosnia and Herzegovina, Georgia, Ukraine, Sweden, and Finland, and Serbia. So, you know, if we take the facts of the matter, there was an organization which was created after the last major world war, which is a mainly um, militaristic organization, which was set up specifically to be an anti-Soviet organization. In response, the Soviets set up their own organization. Then in 19, early 1990s, we start to uh, break all these things down. It's all very, very positive. Germany is to be reunited. Which way is it going to go? Is it going to go to NATO? Is it going to go to um, Warsaw Pact? Assurances were given to the Russians. Hey, don't worry at all. We won't come any further to the east. We won't expand any further. Let Germany be part of what we're doing. Okay, so is Russia no problem at all. Since then, we've got well over 20 extra nations that have joined the uh, NATO uh, organization. Um, I have no opinion on that because I am a sailor and I don't know anything about geopolitics. But I can say, looking at the facts, that if we put together what Putin said in 2007 and what's going on here now, clearly this expansion of NATO has at least given him reason enough to be able to do what he's doing. And that takes us then into how is Putin selling this uh, in Russia? On Russian state media at the moment, um, the way that Putin is selling this is uh, as such. Uh, Ukraine really belongs to Russia. The history of Russia really does kind of begin in Kiev and begin um, you know, thousands of years ago, literally, in, in the Ukraine. It is the cradle of Russian civilization. Um, and so his point in that um, hits true for a lot of Russians. The other thing from that, of course, is the fact that um, Russian people would feel very connected to Ukrainian people and feel very much that um, it's their fellow brothers and sisters um, from 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 the history of Russia. So they feel a connectivity there and he's playing that up. The second point of Putin's narrative is that the Ukraine has been hijacked by the West, that um, because Ukraine is talking about going into um, NATO, because the Ukraine is starting to look more to the West than to the East, it's starting to separate itself off from uh, Russia, um, that the, they have been hijacked. So when you've got a government which is pushing a very particular um, way of thinking onto its uh, citizenry uh, all the time, as is happening in Russia, it's then easy to say, and the bad guys we told you about have now started to infiltrate our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. That kind of also makes sense. It's a, it's a misrepresentation, perhaps, of what's going on, but it there's some logical steps in there that someone will go, yeah, yeah, Ukraine, it's part of Russia, and we know these people, and oh, those bad guys from NATO who have pushed east when they said not to push east. Um, the next part is where it starts to get a bit weird. Um, he starts to talk about the neo-Nazis in, in the Ukraine. Now, this is where things start to get a little bit uh, strange with uh, Putin's uh, narrative, because if you're talking about a country that's being taken over by neo-Nazis, how do you how do you justify that viewpoint? Um, it's it's one of the major points. It's actually now the UN is uh, starting to put pressure on Russia to lay down its arms and justify what it's doing with a special military um, uh, task force that they've sent in, all the rest of it, because they're saying the country's been taken over by neo-Nazis. And there's one thing that we know from our own political narrative in the last five years or so is um, you put Nazis into your uh, headline and people are instantly going to know how to emotionally react to that. As soon as we had the trucker convoy 
here in Ottawa in Canada. As soon as they said there was uh, Nazis in it, that was it. And that was even repeated by our um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that the convoy was filled with Nazis and uh, misogynists and racists and all the rest of this stuff. As soon as that gets thrown into everything, you can everything is tainted it's uh no no one wants to uh get involved in a situation which has nazis in it so it's something that you can easily point to but how do you justify the fact that nazis have taken over the ukraine it is true and i saw this on one news outlet that ukrainian forces joined the ss during the second world war you have to understand the Germans were all, were trying to recruit from every which way, every kind of population they went into. So yes, there were Ukrainians in the SS. There were also British in the US. There were people from Afro-Caribbean backgrounds in working with the Germans. There was uh, people from France. From every country they went into and every population they uh, connected with, there was always some way of leveraging or, or brainwashing people into being in the German forces. That means nothing. One thing that is important is that the Ukrainian SS unit ended up murdering all of their um, uh, German uh, uh, officers and escaping and, and basically stopping being in the SS, which is uh, uh, notable. Now, inside of the Ukraine, there are some political parties which uh, subscribe to neo-Nazi fundamental principles, and uh, they have attracted about 2% of the uh, vote over time. They've never had anybody elected to uh, actual government office, but that vote is always there. So in some ways, it'd be comparable to something like the British National Party in the UK, um, people whose views are absolutely fringe to the main uh, um, population's thoughts and in no way able to represent um, in, in a government body. So in, certain, in terms of neo-Nazis taking over in government, there's nobody voted in and nobody in government seems to be following those things. One of the uh, aspects to recognize also is that the um, president of, uh, of uh, Ukraine has a very interesting background. He's, of course, Volodymyr Zelensky, and um, he, he's, uh, <laughs> he came to power in a kind of unusual way. I think the first thing to start out is, no, he's, he's 44, he's my age, and he was born to Jewish parents. His, um, his um, early life, his um, uh, family actually was very much connected to what happened in the in the in the Holocaust. Um, unfortunately, his uh, grandfather uh, Simon Ivanovich uh, served in the Red Army um, during the Second World War, and his father and three brother brothers were murdered in the Holocaust. Um, they're, they're a Jewish family who's very much aware of what um, the, the the Holocaust was and what pro-Nazi. Um, uh, ideologies lead us towards so the person who's in charge of the country who by the way he got there in a, in a wonderfully um well democratic way really he's basically a comedian and entertainer and he uh had a, a show now I've just got the name of it here i love this story of how he got into uh okay right yeah so he um he had a company called uh Kvartal 95 and that uh, that that uh, production company put out a TV series called Servant of the People and in that show the comedian uh, Vladimir Zelensky played the role of the president um, but <laughs> the people liked him so much that when a political party with the same name as the party in the show was then actually floated as an option people started to vote for him and suddenly this guy who'd been pretending to be the president of Ukraine in a show, a comedian who's, um, what was it, his, uh, yeah, the the um, the party, basically employees of the Kvartal 95, his production company, created a political party around it, put him up there to be elected, and, and he got elected. So 
people had already sort of seen who he was on the TV show and then they voted him in. So they voted in a guy who's got a, a, a strong Jewish heritage who absolutely, they knew who he was going into it. It's not like some um, political stooge or, or lifelong political um, uh, proponent of, of, of any, any particular side. He's just an entertainer, a comedian, and he got kind of like sideways shifted into this role. Um, that's the guy that's leading the country. So less than 2% of the population are voting for neo-Nazis. No neo-Nazi parties are represented in the political cabinet at all. The guy who's in charge is Jewish and uh, had his own family experiences throughout um, the Holocaust. And um, he is in no way a career politician. So how you can say that uh, the Ukraine is being run by neo-Nazis, it, it doesn't connect with any kind of um, logic. That's the main point. But Putin's story goes on. So Ukraine really belongs to Russia. That's the first part of his story. Uh, the Ukraine has been hijacked by the West. Hmm. It's certainly, with the expansion of NATO, it, it, it's kind of like, yeah, that kind of makes sense if you look at it from a particular uh, angle. Neo-Nazis are running the country. Absolutely, definitely not correct. And um, therefore, these this kind of... Um, uh, logic that he's using ends up with the fact that he must invade to free Ukrainians and to protect Russia from the West. Now, free Ukrainians is obviously clearly not correct because they don't need freeing from anything. They are doing their own thing. They've got their own free democratic state. Um, they're just in this very awkward position directly between Russia on their eastern border and Poland and NATO on their western border. And they've now kind of become a pawn in this game. Does Putin have something that he can look at and say, um, hey, you broke your rules? Well, yes, he absolutely does. And that, of course, is what we've seen. His um, uh, statement there in 2007, he's saying, hey, hey, don't get any closer than this. NATO continues to expand. But now he's having to justify this to the to the Russian people. We just heard on the news this morning that um, that Russia will open humanitarian corridors for people to uh, flee uh, Ukraine, but they will only extend corridors that go to the east, that go into Belarus and into into Russia itself, and that fits in with this story. You know, that's what um, Putin is telling the Russian population that. Um, Ukraine belongs to Russia. Ukraine's been hijacked by the West, by the people are being oppressed by neo-Nazis and that he is invading to free Ukrainians. So opening up corridors to the east fits in with that. But clearly that's not going to work because all the people in Ukraine want to get out and go west. They know what's going on. There's enough people in Russia who are demonstrating against this war. Thousands of people being arrested, thousands and thousands of people being arrested across Russia in anti-war demonstrations. They've now switched off some of the TV stations in uh, Russian state media, um, the ones that won't toe the line. And they've literally walked off the sets and saying no to war. Like there's a lot of people in Russia lifting their voices and saying this is wrong. But the only way that Putin's narrative continues to work is if he plays it that we are saving our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Um, when the, the you know what's going to happen is the West is going to say no, we're not coming. You know we do not uh, we do not think that humanitarian corridors that lead back to Russia are actually a way of saving the people. Then Putin can say, look, now the West is denying these people a way of getting out of um, Ukraine. It's a mess that goes on and on. The worry here is where, where of course, does it go? So let's have a quick uh, look at that for a second. The, um, the, the story uh, that I'm starting to understand here is the fact that this probably won't work, um, that Vladimir Putin's um, 
own mental state, in his own uh, situation um, in Russia, he's been very um, much uh, um, isolated in the last couple of years um, because of COVID, of course. But he personally has been very isolated because of his own uh, man, his own uh, rigorous kind of um, uh, 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 procedures to try and stop himself from getting COVID. Um, so I think a lot of people are feeling that he himself may have ended up in a situation where he's not only seeing things through a um a perspective which is steeped in all the stuff we've been talking about his own perspective on uh, the ukraine his own perspective on nato his own pressures within his country but he's also perhaps in a, a mental condition where he's not necessarily seeing everything as it may be he may have a distended view of what's going he may believe his own narrative and that puts, makes him a very dangerous person because um, you're then talking about somebody who has the feeling that they are justified in what they're doing, the just war. And of course, people will throw themselves into a just war uh, at the, the, the drop of a hat because um, we know there's a lot of finances, uh, a lot of money changes hands during war. And we know that um, regimes uh, are strengthened if they can be on the winning side of a war. So he's got no reason whatsoever to try and back out of this right now. He may, however, be uh, stopped by the, the kind of folly of what he's doing. As he's entered the Ukraine, where his forces seem to well have... His, his forces seem to have been under the impression that they were on maneuvers close to the Ukrainian border, and then they've been told to go over the border to rescue Ukrainians, and they're very quickly coming up very, very stiff um, uh, resistance from the Ukrainians. Thank goodness for those people fighting as hard as they can to slow down the Russian move to the West. Um, but the, the thing is that... Uh, even if he's able to overcome the forces which are uh, moving against him in Ukraine, even if he's able to take some of the larger cities, the Ukraine is a massive country. It's a country of 45 million people. They're literally giving out AK-47s to the population. Russia has got uh, uh, ground forces which are uh, way larger than the Ukraine's. Um, in terms of like people on the ground, they outnumber the Ukrainians. They've got about 2 million in reserves. The Ukrainians have got about 1 million in reserve. They've got about 600, 700,000 people that they can throw in an active service. The Ukrainians about 250,000. When you get into mobile artillery, planes, tanks, the, US, the, the Russian forces outnumber Ukrainian forces between 4 and 10 to 1. But, and this is what a lot of uh, military commentators have pointed out here, that the home advantage, when you're defending your home, when you know the places where you're a tight-knit band of people defending something that you believe in, that can give you a three-to-one to, to six-to-one advantage. And the, the scaling up of that advantage happens if the initial attack is slowed. And we're seeing now this massive convoy in Ukraine, which is uh, pinned down. They seem to have run out of ammunition because they got you know into a lot more fighting a lot earlier than they thought that the gasoline uh, is not able to get to the vehicles or the diesel whatever is not able to get to the vehicles are not able to move forward and the ukrainians are pinning them in on that section of road the tracks to either side of it are all mud and in basically impassable by the vehicles so they're just stuck on that road and obviously a huge convoy coming towards your uh, capital is uh, a, a very dire thing but it's so damn big it's so easy to start taking pot shots at it so Putin is in a situation where his main expeditionary force going in is getting a lot of resistance. He's got people in his own country who are kicking back now against war. You've got the Russian oligarchs. That's kind of where I came into this with the, the boat thing. They are obviously clearly going to be massively curtailed in their worldly um, 
business, you know, Russia has been removed from the SWIFT system and uh, MasterCard and Visa have removed the ability to use those cards. There's a run on the, uh, the Russian banks. Um, people with any kind of connections anywhere in the world that have also Russian connections are now very much under fire. Um, the U.S. is kind of weird. They seem to be... Uh, they seem to have this weird thing going on where they should be opening the taps and all their oil supply, of course, and uh, and cutting off the Russian oil. They haven't done that. They haven't done sanctions against Russian oil yet. Hopefully that will come because that will really then um, be a massive issue. But whatever these sanctions are that go in against Russia, at the end of the day, it's the Russian people that are going to take the hit for it. And I think it's very important in this kind of conversation not to get confused between Putin as an individual and what Putin is doing and the Russian people. It's not just one kind of cohesive, homogenous lump that is Russia. You're talking about six-year-old children who might not be able to eat. You're talking about good, honest people who are pacifists, who would sit down and, and you know enjoy a meal with you in your own home that you'd love to have their company. They're now losing their jobs. They're unable to access their money. Poverty is beckoning for these people whose country has already been so difficult for so many generations. So the sanctions that are coming in, yes, they hit big business, but they also hit individual people. Putin's in a situation where he's being crimped in on all sides. And as I say, Ukraine is such a big country that even if he pushes into the east and takes some of the major cities, which is clearly what he's trying to do, Ukraine is so big that if he starts to push um, uh, the, the president's forces, Ukrainian president's forces more to the west, there's so much space for them there. It'd be impossible to to, to beat them in, in that kind of territory, which they know they have loads of support um, and is then putting those forces right up against the Polish border, which is the borders between Russia and Ukraine and NATO. So um, Putin's narrative is not going to work out too well for him because uh, if this is indeed what he's telling people in Russia, it's not going to take too long till communication between people, this kind of media thing um, is going to um, start to inform those people what's going on. It, this could get very, very messy. Putin is backed into a corner here, kind of his own making, but also with some pretty big, big provocation by NATO. And he knows that Ukraine is uh, is a, a, a very important uh, uh, token in all of this. Um, there's, uh, I was going to say earlier, there's some um, amazing videos which are uh, just detailing what some of the uh, commentators on all this, much more serious commentators than me, a sailor, um, people who are political experts on this have been weighing into this uh, conversation already. And we said, you know, Putin's uh, gave that, that warning in 2007. Um, it's worthwhile noting that in um, uh, 1997, June 26th, uh, a group of 50 prominent foreign policy experts that included former senators, retired military officers, diplomats and academics in the U.S., uh, sent an open letter to President Clinton outlining their opposition to NATO expansion because from their point of view, what they know about the world, they realized that it would create this, um, it would create this uh, reason that Putin can then kind of uh, saddle and ride all the way into the Ukraine. Um, George Keenan, who's American diplomat and historian, and one of the guys who kind of kept the lid on the Cold War, he was one of the people that um, did the uh, diplomacy that stopped the Cold War from becoming a hot war. He says, I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. 
Um, the, these are people whose lives are spent, tens of thousands of hours of their lives are sent, spent in this sphere. And we should be listening a little bit to, to what they say. So uh, the other guy is William J. Burns. Um, he's a former ambassador to, to Russia. And he wrote saying, um, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite. From knuckle-draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine in NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. So whilst Russia moving into the Ukraine is a humanitarian crisis, it is morally incorrect. You can see how NATO and... Uh, and, you know, the U.S. kind of holding a lot of the strings of NATO have uh, broken some of the uh, rules that they laid down. They have um, they have expanded more to the east. They have uh, the other thing, of course, they did is that uh, Ukraine lost its um, nuclear weapons when it uh, when the USSR started to break up in the 90s. The Ukrainians uh, had nuclear weapons and they were. Um, offered the deal that um, NATO would support them and would protect them in case there was um, some kind of conflict and that if you could please like give away your nuclear weapons, we will protect you instead. Well, here we are. Here we are 25 years later and I'm sure the Ukrainian people are going, what the bloody hell is going on here now? Um, I think also people are wondering, um, you know, weaker leadership in the US and weaker leadership also in the UK is now leading to a point where perhaps other people are kind of looking over the fence and going, this might be a good time to do something. I read a, a report this morning that said um, that uh, Trump, and I'm not a big Trump supporter at all, but just because you dislike a person doesn't mean that every single thing they say is then incorrectly wrong. That would put you at the disadvantage of logic if you were to say that. Um, but one of the things supposedly that Trump said is that he would bomb Moscow if Putin moved on Ukraine. That was after the Crimea was annexed. Um, none of that, none of that statement is good. None of that statement is moral. None of that statement is to be um, to be getting excited about because whenever there's bombs falling from the sky, it's not on Russia, the homogenous kind of animal that we want to uh, all fight off with a big stick. It's literally children and old people and pacifists and, and the good people you'd have around your table and enjoy their company. Th that's what Russian people are as well as being on the other side, right? Um, but it does show that uh, there's a different style of leadership which is available, which um, certainly creates a, um, a barricade to those who would uh, otherwise take a pot shot if they thought they could. So where are we going with all this? Let's start to, as we're coming up to an hour now, um, you know, these are my my thoughts on what's going on. As I look at the news now, we're starting to see that uh, America was going to be helping the Ukrainians by procuring um, MiG-29s from, uh, from uh, Poland. They seem to have slowed down on that. There's a huge amount of aid going into Ukraine, though, in terms of missiles and ammunition and, and all the stuff that's being uh, sent. Um, lethal aid, I think it was uh, phrased as. Um, there's also millions, if not billions of dollars and, and, and uh, euros going into Ukraine. So I think that NATO recognizes that... Um, Ukraine is the border. Ukraine is as far as you can go east. If they can calm this down, if if, if uh, Putin can be pushed back, what's going to happen is Ukraine is going to be where all the fighting is. I see that Finland are now talking about going into NATO. I saw their um, president on um, on TV a couple of days ago talking about the fact that uh, they've always resisted going into NATO, but now they share a very long border with Russia and they're kind of interested like, hey, you know, what's, uh, what's next for us? Um, 
from the Russian perspective, they have this uh, narrative in play where they can keep saying NATO expands and that's a threat to Russia. And that has been the way that NATO has been doing its business for 70 years. NATO was set up post-war. It was set up to kind of uh, create a unified force against the uh, USSR. When the uh, Warsaw Pact was broken up and the USSR broke up, um, the USSR expected NATO to break up as well. The NATO was created as an anti-Soviet convention. Um, as that hasn't happened, you have to wonder, have we given Putin some of the tools that he needed to create this false narrative to justify going into Ukraine? As we then look for a solution to this, we have to start to ask the question, um, do we need to make changes about what we're doing um, to, to, to move into a time of peace after this? How does Ukraine get through? Uh, through uh, this? How does it get through to a point where it's a, an independent sovereign country with a democratically elected leadership? Again, when it is clearly uh, getting squeezed between the, 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 the size of Russia and Belarusia and the size of NATO on its eastern and western uh, borders, how can they um, fight their way out of it? The Russian people over time are going to start to learn more and more about the, the lies that Putin's um, uh, peddling. But ultimately, some elements of it are true and we need to recognize that the most important thing right now is that the people inside of the ukraine are nobody else dies that they either get out of there or that the the the, the, the aggression stops through treaty or by a standoff as the military might build up on either side um, but whatever happens the first and most important thing is the humanitarian question has to be answered but um, thereafter if you're going to go into negotiations with russia you know, they might not be able to substantiate that the country's been taken over by neo-Nazis. They may not be able to substantiate that it sort of belongs to Russia, as per Putin's uh, uh, narrative on state uh, TV in the in uh, the U.S. In, no, not the USSR. In Russia, what he thinks is the USSR. Um, but ultimately, he is correct about a couple of things. And for some people in Russia, that will be enough. How do we change that? Well, that's not for me to to get into because. I'm a sailor and I don't know anything about geopolitics other than what I can absorb through uh, the, the sources which I refer to. So um, I think as we watch this going forward, I think we've got to keep these things in mind. We've got to keep in mind how long and complex this uh, history is. Certainly, I think for my North American friends uh, and North American uh, listeners on the podcast, we've been discussing this a little bit. Um, it's sometimes difficult to realize that, uh, you know, things go way way back in european countries but um there's a, an important thing here is that uh russian interests uh and, and the the um uh the warsaw pact countries one of the reasons that came together was that there were five examples that russia had of the west kind of uh getting involved in their things which caused them to want to like take an uh, an, op uh, an opposing and oppositional uh, a position uh, to, to NATO. Um, those five things are in 1610 to 1612, um, there was a Polish occupation of the Kremlin. Um, in in uh, the 1708, uh, the Swedish uh, invaded Russia. Uh, in, in 1812, Napoleon invaded Russia. And then there were two world wars. That's five separate reasons uh, since the 1600s that Russia has been invaded and felt threatened by the West. So they have their historic reasons. They also feel that they have uh, been lied to by NATO, who has kept expanding and kept doing the very thing it said it wouldn't do. 
those things need to be addressed. Russia needs to feel that it's not under threat. Um, is it under threat? Well, we're very quick to throw all of these um, sanctions in. We're very quick to create the, uh, the, the, the movement of money and arms into Ukraine. It does sort of have that feeling that they were kind of like they were already stewing and waiting for this, for this war, that this Ukraine was going to be the boundary. But there has to be a humanitarian way out of this because we cannot allow ourselves to fall into World War Three. One thing, finally, as we come to the last couple of minutes of this, um, looking at the nuclear threat, uh, the um, uh, American ambassador to, uh, to to Russia was saying that um, Russia is forever playing around with its nuclear threat levels, that it does it on a kind of like almost weekly basis just to keep it in the news that uh, they have, of course, this massive uh, nuclear arsenal. Um, but what the ambassador was explaining is that from a Russian point of view, he felt that they would never use uh, nukes uh, in, in a tactically uh, offensive method, that their reason for having nukes is that if they fail in what they're doing, well, that's one level of war. But the way that they uh, would deploy them is if they were going to lose, like you're going to lose the integrity of their country. That's their final action. But they talk about it and they see it as a much bigger, they see it as a stepping stone on the same path as conventional war, where in the West we see nuclear weapons being completely separate from conventional war and absolutely to be avoided because of the obvious consequences for the entire planet. But um, for I think they might do a lot more saber rattling with nuclear weapons, but those who are a lot closer to the subject than me sitting in Nova Scotia, <laughs> you know, know, who knows how to tie knots, um, they say that that nuclear threat is not something that we necessarily need to be like fully worried about at the moment. We just let's stay focused on the humanitarian crisis, the humanitarian crisis that's going on in Ukraine, the humanitarian crisis, which is going to start to happen in Russia, when those sanctions start to bite, when no one's got no any money, it's you know it's a freezing cold country that doesn't have very much money anyway, and now they're getting like shut down because of the actions of what's going on with Putin. So, as I'm watching this uh, un unfold, um, what I'm looking for is Vladimir Putin has to start to uh, gently um, ease back on his narrative. Is that going to happen? I don't know. This guy is pretty scary. There's a list of over 122 different people that uh, major evidence points to the fact that he has been uh, uh, involved in their disappearance or them uh, being murdered, basically. Um, this is, you know, while we say on one side he may have some points that we can um, we can uh, uh, understand, the other point is the fact that there's a reason why we keep expanding towards Russia is because the people that are in charge, they're very scary people and they're not particularly good for their for their own citizens either. Um, they have a very different view of the world. Um, I guess the other comment in all this is where's China in this? They seem to be quite supportive of it at the beginning. Now they seem to be coming out with a bit more uh, rhetoric based around um, that they're not supporting what Putin's doing. So there's a lot going on in all this. Um, I, I wanted to sort of talk talk about it a little bit to open up the uh, the, the floodgates on on talking more about these kind of subject matters. I'm quite happy to, to discuss this as I would discuss it with anybody on the deck of a boat. I know from being in the military, never discuss politics or religion at the table. So um, I'm sure we'll get a few more comments on this than we do normally. Um, I, my political leanings are uh, absolutely center, I guess, is the way of putting it. I have uh, 
neither to the right nor to the left. I, I'm trying to understand what the political landscape is at the moment. And then I'll start to maybe have an opinion as to where I am on it. But it, things seem to be changing so damn quickly that um, it's hard to even understand. But what I do know always is that when people are being killed, that must stop. And then we must start to discuss how to move forward. I think it's intelligent to recognize that there's long historical reasons on either side where this is happening. And we need to have a solution which uh, speaks to those reasons as well as dealing with what's happening immediately in front of us. So um, I would love to hear from you on this. Um, I, I, I haven't done anything like this before on the channel. And I'm sure for some of you are like, Jesus, why is this guy talking about um, anything other than sailing? Stick to what you know. But again, I, I believe that we live in a world now where everybody needs to um, do what they can to share what they think. Otherwise, how does this medium work? I'm sitting here. I'm thinking one thing. Um, you're sitting there thinking your own thing. If we don't communicate and share our ideas, how do we start to understand that we all have basically the same idea? My experience of the world is that everybody's basically good. Everyone's basically very kind, very helpful. Um, uh, as I've traveled the world in 25 odd years since I left home, um, I've come upon nothing but, but, uh, but joyful, happy, mostly pacifist people. And yet we have these people in the world who are able to move huge numbers of people um, against each other and make billions from it. Like uh, we all need to have our voice and not be scared to 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 say what we think. Um, am I nervous? There'll be people in the comments that totally disagree with me. Yeah, a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think I've said anything here, which is anything other than facts. I certainly don't seek to uh, share anything other than facts as I've uh, received them. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear your your comments on this. Um, and let's start start a conversation. But uh, for now, we all obviously keep our eyes on the news. Um, I, I would also um, go out on a limb and say I'm happy to talk about COVID and what's happening. Obviously, that uh, is an area where it's extraordinarily easy to um, lose your YouTube uh, channel. But um, I think if we stick to the facts, if we stick to the truth, I think if we stick to um, comparing legitimate reliable sources and then we should be able to find the truth it shouldn't be that hard to find truth in a world which is overflowing hydrant style with information and yet here we are trying to work it out so um yeah i look forward to hearing you from you on this one it's uh absolutely essential that we we keep communicating and keep sharing what we know and and understand what's happening in front of us so I guess that's all from me. As I always say on my podcast, if you've not heard it, um, we have this phrase when we uh, when I sign out my log, which is that uh, the vessel is sound and the crew safe. And then I sign and underline my log book, meaning everybody is safe and sound. So I offer that to you in these crazy times. I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.